Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bias Check-In. Hi everyone, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of the day you are listening. Susie, what are we checking in with for this episode? We are checking in with our special guest, Jasmine Krenzel. We are talking about black psychology, Afrofuturism, being represented in the world of biopsychology, how she got into it, being a hilltopper, St. Edward's University, and yeah, but before you get to listen to her interview, we just want to run through some housekeeping. So if you are a return listener, you know what I'm about to say. We love talking to you guys. Talk back to us. Let us know what you're thinking about the episodes. We got you on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. You can email us. You can leave us a voice message. Check in with us on Clubhouse if you want. We're just going to make a room so you can tell us everything you're thinking about the episodes. But before we can do that, we're going to check in with Jasmine now. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Could you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Jasmine, or Jazzy, as people like to say. I'm a researcher and organizational psychologist. I also give public speaking workshops on different things like personal branding, self-awareness, and Black psychology and Afrofuturism. Perfect. And that is exactly what we're talking about today. Before we go into more of this interview, can you please explain to us what Black psychology is defined as and also Afrofuturism? Right. So as you would say for psychology in general, it's the study of the mind and people and their behaviors. Black psychology is similar, only its main focus is on people of African descent and within the Black diaspora all around the world. And it not only seeks to understand them from their own viewpoint, but also to change them into mindful agents of their own mental and political liberation. So they want to um, reject white psychology and the frankly lies that it's perpetuated about at all people of color and their methodology to be more um, inclusive and holistic rather than just Gestaltian and looking at the part of the whole. Mm-hmm. And it just wants to focus on Afrocentric models of study and therapy and to intervene in the social struggle for a more black and human environment. In terms of Afrofuturism, it is a cultural aesthetic, a philosophy of history and a philosophy of society. And it wants to expand what blackness is. And it also can be described as like black science fiction. Can you walk us through what, how did you get to Afrofuturism and to your interest in Black psychology, when did you first run into the field? How, why is your origin story? <laughs> oh my God. I want to do a workshop just on origin stories because I think they're so interesting. But in the interest of not getting sidetracked, I got inspired by it after Black Panther, but it was a maybe, it was just like around this time last year because I wanted to learn more about Black history outside of the civil rights movement and slavery. And doing so was a little bit difficult. There are some sources out there, but um, I ran into Afrofuturism eventually. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I can, I feel like it can help a lot of people come to terms with who they are and who they have been and what role they can play and contribute into society if they knew this information and had that representation growing up in schools because 
I look back and I'm like, oh my God, like we only focus on people from Europe. Like I was taking a world literature class and they were only focusing on like European and American authors. So the only reason I, I read about someone who wasn't from those two places was because I chose to. So um, it just came to me that I was like, well, if people know about black psychology and Afrofuturism, maybe they'll feel better and we can extract lessons from that to move forward in the conversation of inclusion. Gotcha. And that was one thing that really, so taking this back. So we got to cross paths with you thanks to the IO Coffee House and the presentations you held there on this topic. And at least the presentation that I attended, that was something that really took me back when you explained a little bit about black psychologists, what they contributed to the field. I was like, well, I, I recognize the names. I never knew what to imagine or how they look like because I was completely erased from books. It isn't all like, well, this is what the field looked like 50 years ago. It's just how we are revisioning history to look like right now. Yes, I agree 100% with that. Um, Jasmine, what would you say is the most surprising thing you've learned so far? Mm -hmm. Surprising. When I was thinking about developing a workshop or just like a lecture about this, I was thinking specifically about how it can address internalized depression, meaning like feelings of inferiority about your own people. And to, that was actually one of the first things that I learned about black psychologists and their work. Like they were literally addressing that, that aspect of like the impact of racism on mental health. So I was able to just seeing that that was like a thought I had just from reading about it, <laughs> then to have that confirmed in learning more about their work, like with um, Inez Beverly Prosser. I think that was really cool. Nice. So we were thinking the same thing and this happened like over 70 years ago. Yes. And we are still working on it. <laughs> oh, God, yes. Another thing we have in common, Jasmine, on this side of the family, my mom is a hilltopper as well. So what was it like to go to undergrad in Austin, St. Edwards University? What was that experience like? Yeah, St. Edwards was cool. It taught me a lot about accepting other cultures because literally our slogan is take on your world, right? So you meet... All sorts of people and Austin's a very special place it has a lot of creativity and tech now like it's literally called Silicon Hill and it's crazy to see how much it's growing um, and there's a lot of opportunities you can get from um, being in Austin for sure in terms of music and also just the things surrounding South by Southwest and ACL I think it's like a great place to be especially as like a young person it's only growing how if at all did that influence you into going into IO psych my, one of my first jobs was working in insurance and I was like, oh, okay. They're like a little inefficient. I wonder if I can help. And I always like psychology, especially personality psychology. Mm -hmm. And one of my first papers in rhetoric and composition freshman year was about the validity or reliability or lack thereof of the Myers-Briggs. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, I just like looked up if there's like a business psychology and there was, it's IO. Mm -hmm. So um, that was like my first form into it. And also at St. Edwards, there's a IO course you can take with Alan Swinkles. He's the best. So now let's talk about the sessions you held with the IO Coffee House. Claudia? Yeah, so during, so I came to the second one for anyone who wasn't in the IO Coffee House. And I loved how the other members of the coffee house were very comfortable jumping in. It's like, yes, because of the Black Panther and Storm and how do we represent them? 
And I came to it completely blind and new to Afrofuturism. So I was like, okay, hold up, hold up. I know this. I can relate to this. I love this. <laughs> right. I was like, okay, okay, this is a bunch. And it's such a different, nice experience compared to the stereotypes about who likes comics and what those people look like and what they act like. And I was like, no, we're just a bunch, mostly my session, I think mostly women or female identifying people of every possible shape and color, just loving nerding out together. And it was so nice. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even all IOs either. Like I think someone was like a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. and they just had different backgrounds. Um, I always grew up feeling different as well. And so I think a key component to relating to people is unlocking that sense of psychological safety in yourself and non-judgment and self-acceptance. So I think that's important to curate into any space. Um, but I, re I really liked the session in general. I was surprised that like Lorena Solis too, like she, um, one of the rhetorical questions I had was like, why would we need to rehabilitate our sense of self other than society? And she's like, well, you know, it's like because of the institutional racism that's bred into these um, educational places and stuff. And um, it's also very healing to read words from people who experienced the same thing you did just decades prior. Because I do um, believe that language is access. So, you know, it's like, it's an abstract feeling or idea to have these negative connotations that come from being discriminated against or ostracized in one way. But if you have words in front of you that are validating your experience, it's really powerful because you can speak from that and relate. So it was really cool to like witness that other people feel the same way. A culture such different as like what has been the Black experience in the US, like the narratives that I've grown up with and I think the narratives that a lot of people with a similar background grew up with is always the strife, the pain, like all the negativity. But someone said there's joy in active resistance and in portraying like, no, like there's so much joy, there's so much strength, there can be growth that does not have to come from pain, from strife and from negative experiences. Exactly. I think I said that about Audre Lorde. She, she's also somebody um, people should read about. But yeah, I think there's so much to um, representation and the type of representation that's shown. Um, I actually did a symposium last year on Black trauma in the workplace. It was inspired by an article written by Courtney McClooney. I believe. And that was inspired by a YouTube video by Evelyn from the internet. <laughs> Everyone should look at her too. She's amazing. She's in Austin as well. But um, yeah, there's a whole layer of trauma that's cemented when social media enters the conversation. Because it's not just the event of police brutality, for example, it's also like the videos circulating around that are like unfiltered or moderated. And to combine that with being in the workplace, the thing that's affecting the trauma most is the shared social identity with the victim that you have so you're like oh I relate to this and it's like like for the capital riot some like one of my friends was like well like we're not there like we're not in DC so it's like not affecting us I'm like no like this could happen anyway because mm -hmm. that's just the pathos of the people in power mm -hmm. so that's like the scary part but just watching um Afrofuturist media or any positive representation that's fictional can help expand your notion of what black consciousness is or what your representation would look like for yourself. And I think that's lends itself to psychological safety and just feeling more accepted. Absolutely. 
I think it was on a recent episode of another great podcast, The Cohort Sisters, that um, someone mentioned, you know, like I went to med school and I was able to become a doctor because when I was a kid in the 60s, I grew up with a pediatrician who was a black woman. So when my third grade teacher was like, well, you know, you really like that a black doctor you know, is not a thing. It was like, I, I don't believe that because I have seen someone being a black female doctor. And it's mm-hmm. the same way, like if even for those who may not have those role models in their communities quite yet or have access to them quite yet, you can mm-hmm. see them on paper. And now you can see them, of course, internet, you can relate um, over social media so you can see what things you could become and you could see. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was this quote by Donald Glover. I believe he said, like, there's so many jobs that haven't even been created yet. And I think that's the biggest proof um, with COVID. Like, it's kind of destroyed industries and, like, rebuilt new ones out of necessity. Like, Clubhouse, for example, it's, like, mm-hmm. telecom and having access to people in new ways and engendering different modes of social media and emphasizing voice. Like, I also had a minor in communication, so I find, like, linguistics and communication really interesting. Absolutely. But- Clubhouse is... Uh- such an interesting phenomenon because I'm thinking of all the people that live alone throughout the pandemic yeah how much we've heard of like hey I don't remember the last time I really spoke other than to call up the delivery guy for the pizza <laughs> like and now you can just jump into any room and chit chat with people all over the place um, and you have the psychological safety that whatever you say stays in the room uh, which to me is also funny because that was always a motto in the family what we say in the kitchen stays in the kitchen <laughs> and now there's a sense of community of okay what we say in our wednesday chat it's for us it's mm-hmm. an, it's that exclusivity and that safety i still need to get into the idea of clubhouse yeah it's cool though like i joined in december and there's so many conversations that i wish i could tell my friends about but the the lore of it is first the exclusivity mm-hmm. because it's in beta but also just the nuance that comes with that it's not like a zoom call where it's like it can be really tiring you're thinking about how you're being perceived and a lot of the same um conversations are happening and like the intricacies of them like for instance um there was i think a study done or something about how like white men typically have the green star the green square on them longest so Mm -hmm. it's like showing that they are the ones dominating the conversation so it's just Mm -hmm. spilling over into technology now but um, th- those conversations are really nuanced and cool. And with voice, you can hear the um, intonation and in people's voices. So I, it's like a party line, I guess, for like in a lot of other terms. And so I've seen rooms go on for days. Like people just really need to talk things out. I think it's really important to have conversations. And I hope the IO Coffee House can be that for IOs and like other people who decide to join. It's a tall order, but I think that's the direction it's moving in. I, I really like that because it was started on similar premises. Like, mm-hmm. okay, COVID happened, internship season just flew out the window, mm-hmm. job offer season just flew out the window too. How do we tell people to network and to get to know each other when you're not even supposed to go hug your relatives? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, it's... Awesome. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think it comes from the same situation. And again, thinking of all the people, especially in our age range, early career that may be living on their own, maybe new to a town because they just moved there for work and then the world shut down. Uh, 
it's nice to bridge that gap of like, okay, I can talk to new people. Mm-hmm. I can meet someone. <laughs> you can make connections like you wouldn't have made otherwise. Yeah, it's really cool. And like, you can be talking to a celebrity and getting advice from them on like stocks or whatever you want. Like you can truly like bring your full self to the app. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exciting for people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to bring it back for a second to black psychology and what we were saying and what you share in the sessions about how their work has been whitewashed and erased to an extent. And in the workshop, you asked all the participants to think and to reflect for a second, how can we honor their work going forward? And how can we make sure that this erasure doesn't keep happening? Um, and that we don't lose the memory of what they went through while they were working for us to study their work. Uh, years later. Um, I want to return that question to you. How would you like to see Black psychology honored moving forward? I think people should start by acknowledging all the titles that those people had, because it's rare that they were only psychologists. Some of them were philosophers, and philosophy is usually an antecedent to psychology. And um, acknowledging all their titles, all of their contributions, and how all of those can be used in multiple fields like education, healthcare, the arts, because I mean, usually they're all talking to each other because all of the experiences are not mutually exclusive. They're all happening at the same time from the same force. So in terms of our day, I think Zoom is a very important tool that we should use for archiving and keeping that information because we live in an age, like we're off the age of information now. It's about how people can curate it. So we're definitely in an age of creativity. And if you know how best to disseminate information in a way that's engaging and encompassing of the context in which we're living, I think that would be a vital tool to keep their work alive and honor it today. I will admit I'm not a fan of Zoom, short of yeah. your coffee house. I, <laughs> I'm i not on board. I don't want my boss to see the inside of my house. Right. I, if I'm able to work in pajamas, I, that doesn't mean I want to, people to see me work in pajamas. Um, and we, you touched upon how like it can be stressful. There's so much presentation management and like am I sitting upright am am I really listening like I'm there for the pets I'm there for when your cat walks across the screen that's about it Um, but I do love hearing about the idea of using it as a recording instrument Mm -hmm. so that it makes information more accessible because especially with the amount of information we get thrown at whether it's good information partial information fake news what have you (laughs) it's so hard to sift through so that could be an interesting way to just make these available to other people afterwards. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I don't think history, like, especially, you know, with education, I was talking about how history isn't, it's taught from like a personalistic, like just heralding the individual or kind of without context or, you know, so I think if we're taught things in relation to one another and with context, then it would be more engaging and we're more likely to internalize those messages and have a compassionate understanding of other cultures instead of demonizing them or being too ethnocentric. And I think that can carry on into research as well. Mm-hmm. If, if you guys were going to go on to a PhD or just whenever you're writing papers, you're like, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but just, I, that's one of the first things I learned about research. It's like, it's also informed by the culture that they are from. Absolutely. So the perspective colors their, the conclusions they make, the premises they base it on, methodology, who they're sampling, everything. So, absolutely. And it's always going to be informed by our context again. 
Zoom fatigue. Mm -hmm. Is work from home viable in the long term? It's not a question we were asking ourselves a year and a half ago. I definitely Um, did a paper on um, telework and then pandemic. And even in that research was like, there is such thing as Zoom fatigue. There is such thing as not leaving your phone. There is such thing as checking your email 24-7. And now that everything is like this, Yep. and you want to extend it for longer like you know that's just not viable and people will not be able to to deal with it to deal with it for much longer which i'm glad to see that we are challenging that not super glad that the pandemic is still a thing but again it just goes to prove how much our context influences mm-hmm. what we focus on um and back to your point like how we can study just from a personal point of view or just from like the zeitgeist of the moment my teacher is going to be so proud Dr. Also, zeitgeist is such a fun uh, word to say i just like it <laughs> i use it all the time i'm like it's just so apt for the times like it's just such an appropriate word all the time so yeah connecting back how we've seen the pandemic highlight what we're already issues very present in the current societies mm-hmm. it's just that all of a sudden we couldn't we couldn't ignore them anymore. It's going to be very interesting to read about this in a couple of years, or maybe look at back on our Zoom recordings in 10, 15, however long. So many TikToks about that. <laughs> they're talking, they're, like it's in 20, 2050 and they're like, they said there's like another pandemic and we're just like shell-shocked. We're like, we can't do this uh, again. Back in my day when we first <laughs> yeah. had to go hunt for toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we're going to be just like wearing masks forever now. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> definitely that's part of my personality now is mask work yeah um i was gonna ask do you have any resources of course the video with the io coffee house will come out at some point uh but for people that don't know yet about the coffee house or couldn't attend your presentation do you have any recommendations on stuff that people should be listening to or reading about to get dip their toes into Black psychology and Afrofuturism. Yeah, with Afrofuturism, you should look into Adrian Marie Brown. She is a scholar of Octavia Butler, who is like the mother of Afrofuturism. And um, yeah, I would say Octavia Butler and Adrian Marie Brown, and also Nettie Akorafor. They're all Afrofuturist writers. Um, as far as Black psychologists, Wade Nobles is really cool because he did his specifically on education and the harm that whitewashing does on individuals. It's just because it was started, you know, in the 1900s. So some of these people are still alive and like still building out their own practices around black psychology and Afrocentric thought. Yeah, but Wade Nobles is one of my favorites so far. What what have we not covered? Um, This is your, your moment. Anything else that we haven't said that you want to say? Maybe just taking um, a more intersectional, like the implications of it, like what we're learning from Afrofuturists, because there are people trying to um, just provide a narrative for themselves. And especially in the wake of COVID, that's kind of been thrown into suspense for a lot of people. Like, you know, when you go to an interview and you're like, what's your five-year plan? I'm like, are you sure I should be answering this? Like, <laughs> or do you have a five-year plan? Because I have a five-day plan. 
if that, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's things coming up on TikTok all the time and they're like, have you seen this movie? And they're like, I want to now. It's just, you want to like live in the moment more. And I think there's more respect for that. But um, I think everyone should take away that Afrofuturists are ultimately inclusive and holistic and they want everyone to acknowledge differences. They're not colorblind, but they want to unify because of them and to amplify human potential through their unification. So they don't see differences as a hindrance or something to be diminished for their own self-esteem. They feel like there's more dignity in unifying and collaborating. I think that's an attitude we should all carry and understanding that education is ultimately socialization. So the way that we tell stories not only affects children, but also their ongoing self mythology. And that's something they're gonna need to arm themselves with to navigate a world that's constantly changing and trying to tell them who they are. Absolutely. And, and again, like what we teach, like looking back at my own education and how partial it was uh, and bias, it just, it's so much easier to teach kids dignified compassion and acceptance of others because that's what you're going to carry into your adult age rather than than finding yourself as an adult having to unlearn all this bs and be like holy moly wait that was some crap <laughs> yeah. wade noble Absolutely. had a whole text about that and how like whitewashing king tut doesn't help anybody we need to teach accurate historical accounts to show it's like you can do whatever you want to because this is what's happened in the past. Like you have so much power, you seem to harness it. And um, it teaches like uh, all children to respect each other because they like learning about other cultures. They do, it's just a matter of doing it. And same with all of the anti-Asian sentiment that's gone on even pre-COVID, but definitely now because we had a president that called it the Kung Flu virus or the Chinese virus, like they're really hurting right now. And I hate seeing that. I don't want them to be um, erased from conversations that need to be held. Inclusive, inclusivity means having the necessary conversations to address our biases, even if it's uncomfortable. So, um, it was, however, yeah, uncomfortable, yep. you know, that's how you know it's a pain point and it needs to be built on. Um, no, absolutely. I think that has been a very bitter silver lining of the COVID pandemic and all of us being more connected through all of the trauma that we're going through as people is realizing, okay, like people who don't look like me, people who have absolutely different backstories are hurting just the same. And if they support me, how can I be there and support them? And that goes to the Asian community, to the black American community. It's just being very nice to see cohesion coming out of it even though it came out of the worst possible circumstances. Yeah, I agree. But I think it was like a mass shift for the better, ultimately. If that's what it takes to just kind of unify us or at least start to respect each other in that way, then I guess all we can do is take the good from it and keep going. Absolutely. And I like to think of it as an act of rebellion as well. Because in any system, if you think if you think of a majority, like it's in its interest to pit minorities against each other. Because there's there can only be one good minority at a time. There can only be a narrative. And it just feeds into the oppressed doing the work of the oppressor. 
So I'm very glad to see that that is finally starting to come undone. Yeah, I think it'll be, it's easier said than done. It's like, well, we're learning too. Like we never got the chance to really learn about that. That's something we have to take accountability for. Um, but hopefully we can all just kind of explore that, what that means for ourselves and honor ourselves enough to carry it out in all our spheres to, um, in, in a safe way. Absolutely. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. It was awesome to go through from Black psychology, <laughs> Afrofuturism, Clubhouse, and LinkedIn, and how are they weird? Um, Thanks for inviting me. I was like, oh my God, I owe A lot of food for thought, a lot of really good recommendations that if you didn't catch her conversations at the IO Coffee House. One, what are you doing? You should totally join the IO Coffee House. But we understand it may not fit your schedule, so no worries. We re recorded the like Cliff Notes version. Cliff Notes version. For this episode. Um, but a lot of good things. You should keep learning, keep expanding your knowledge. Keep challenging what we've been taught before because it may just be part of the story on one version of the story. That said, if you do go through any of the resources that Jasmine shared, if you listen, read, watch any of that, let us know. What did you think? Did you look at it from a different lens now? Mm -hmm. And if you have any other recommendations, please share them with us and we will share them on our social media with all of you beautiful people. We are going to go work on that some of that food for thought. And we're going to talk to you guys next week. Bye. Have a good one, guys.